welcome to Veterans to Success. And we've got two giant here today with me. Uh, Chris Rose. Chris, I just want to uh, give a little bit about you. You're a far, former army officer, very successful. Uh, then you transitioned to NATO as a civil servant, moving on now to a, a career, a portfolio career, as you describe it. And, and me knowing a little bit about you, I can definitely agree uh, to, with you when you say portfolio career. So, Chris, it's important that the listener, you the listener, get an understanding of where you've come from. So tell me a little bit about your life before joining the military so we get a feel for you. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for that uh, introduction. Um, as far as I, I'm concerned, I was slightly uh, biased and, and almost born into a military family. My father was a, a Royal Engineer uh, in the British Army. Um, and as most um, army kids, uh, you know, we travelled around. So I, uh, in my youth, between the ages of three and five, we were in Germany in Osnabrück. Not that I remember a great, great deal uh, of that. And then we bounced around various parts of the UK um, that many soldiers and, and sappers will be familiar with, including Water Beach. Um, and my father went off for a couple of years to Thailand. So we, we were in a, in a hiring in, in sort of deepest Sussex. And then, then at, at, um, come, to, come to about nine years old, I think we'd been in about four or five different schools, my sister and I, um, and lived in, in a number of different countries and different parts of the UK. Uh, my father then left the military um, at uh, the age of around 40 or so. Um, and then we moved to Surrey, where I started uh, a little bit more stability um, and went to school in, in central Surrey. Uh, and that took me up to, to university time. Brilliant. So, yes, yeah, so you had a varied childhood, I think it would be true to say. And Osnabrück, no, well, I was posted uh, a great place, interesting place. And Water Beach, yes, as a sapper myself, engineer, yet Water Beach does bring back fond memories. So, you know, you've just, you've skimmed over that uh, and and quite nicely. The fact there's an awful lot would have been going on during your childhood. What sort of challenges did you face as a, as a, as a child, if you remember, the family unit? Yeah, that's, and again, not nothing particularly unusual for military families, you know, much more so for, for, for civilian families who, who tend to be, not always these days, of course, but tend to be much more static. So we were moving every one to two years. Mm. Um, you know, at times it felt like we were part of a sort of witness protection scheme, uh, you know, and that you have <laughs> to leave friends, uh, you have to arrive, you're you know, a little bit shy, you have to you know, uh, get to know a completely new school, in some cases, a new country, a new languages. Um, so it, it, it could be, and just as you're settling down, then it's time to move again. So again, this won't be unusual for a lot of uh, military families, um, but it, it's you know, quite challenging. And I think that builds a degree of robustness um, on the one hand, on the other hand, you know, it's quite disruptive from the educational point of view, hence, hence the need for, um, you know, uh, private schools and, and um, you know, uh, boarding schools for, for those families that wish to go down, down that route. Yeah. You know, and you, you can see that there's a real challenge in making decisions about whether you have the children live with you or the, or the children 
you know, going to boarding school. And those those all come with with you know their own challenges. Um, and it's affected me to such an extent that I left the army when my daughters were 11 years old because they'd been to uh, five different schools in about seven years or so, you know, and they needed um, the stability of education and location yeah. that only being static, um, you know, could, could bring. So I think that gives an, an idea. But again, those families living through that will, will know that better than I do. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is despite those challenges, and in fact, it, it, it gave you a robustness, as you, as you quite rightly said, and despite that, you still decided to join the military. So what, I mean, apart from being maybe slightly mad, what, what prompted you to join the military? Yeah, well, you know, the, the saying that for Royal Engineers, they're either mad, married or, or Methodist. <laughs> it's probably all three. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, what, again, obviously, I was impacted by living in military quarters on military bases with my father's own military career. Um, and it sounded pretty exciting. Uh, it sounded as though there was lots of travel involved. You know, there's a little bit of sport. And I was quite enjoying all that, those aspects, you know, while at school. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this this would help. Fundamentally, uh, my parents had, had been able to send me to, to private school for a few years. I was very, very fortunate. But that was a financial strain, you know. So the, the option of, of going and attending, having a bursary to help finance uh, that the army offered to help finance, to, you know, through university uh, was also a big draw as well, you know, and, and that scheme, mm. I think, is still available today. So um, so at the age of 16 and a half, I went off to the regular commissions board or the army officer selection board, nervous as hell, younger than virtually everyone else, quite shy and introverted at the time, um, and sort of scraped through and luckily was offered a bursary that, help fund you know university education um and the commitment after that was was um doing you know sandhurst young officer training for all engineers and then a two-year tour which which i did in in germany um you know and it's i, I was pretty convinced i was going to leave and do something in the sort of geology and chemistry field that i've done at university um but actually uh, enjoyed it so much i stayed for another 27 years so wow yeah, and yeah. that is serving your time. And it's quite interesting, you know, I, I know you touched on the private education, which a lot of pe people, because I've, because we discussed this at some length, Chris, that some, I did get a, one particular person say, oh, um, oh, that officer, what do they know about normal uh, normal life as an ordinary ranker? And, 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 that, and we were discussing that rank becomes less important as you become more experienced if that makes sense and 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 there's some people blame or 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 hold responsible difference in in upbringing at the end of the day so long as we all do our best that's the main thing that matters isn't it certainly uh, absolutely and and i'd say a couple of things you know the first one is yeah i mean it I think compared to a number of people, I, I have had a very privileged upbringing, you know, and it's important that you recognise that. Uh, one of the jobs I, I had was at uh, the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst uh, at the running something called Rowallan Company, where you actually take the potential young officers uh, through, through a course at Sandhurst before the main commissioning course. 
and quite a lot of the the, the young young cadets coming in at that stage you know, are lacking a little bit of confidence or or something. Um, and those individuals, you know, need um, quite often broadening. You know, mm. you've seen individuals come through Welbeck uh, University, maybe yeah. even the military university at Shrivenham, and then come and join the army. And those people, some of those people, some individuals need broadening. You know, so actually going up, uh, you know, attending a soup kitchen and meeting people who are homeless. You know, that's those aspects. You need to understand, and you know, the whole breadth of individuals and all of their backgrounds, and appreciate that, um, and you know, to be able to, to to lead and manage effectively, and that's in the army and outside the military. So actually, taking an interest in in people is the first thing I'd say, whatever rank you are. And the second aspect is, you know, I have seen, and we discussed it briefly, uh, you know, private soldiers, uh, junior NCOs coming out. Into the into the sort of civilian environment, you know, and really just going out there and making a huge success and running companies, you know, it's it's not everyone does that, you know, but you know, rank matters virtually not at all once you've left the military. So I think your point there is is absolutely right. You know, nothing is holding you back except yourself. That may be a trite statement, but uh, that, that's a great statement, actually, Chris. Yeah, no, you can see, I've certainly seen some huge, uh, impressive uh, managers of, of companies and organisations who've, you know, come out after only a few years in the military and really made a huge difference and taken every opportunity that, that they could they could create for themselves. Uh, so. I, yeah, and what I'd like to touch on later uh, during our discussion is the fact that many employers really value the call them soft skills, if you will, which are not actually soft skills at all. They're massive skills that you learn in the army that that maybe just don't get taught in Civvy Street in the same way. So we'll talk, you know, things like responsibility, punctuality, discipline, teamwork, uh, and, and that sort of stuff. So I'd like just part that for a minute. I'd like you to touch on that. What, what I'd like to delve in now a little bit more, because I know what a very career you have and, you've had and are having and being a sapper i totally understand the responsibilities that you've undertook and taken on board so tell me a bit about your military career where where you served what you got up to how your training basic training and how your military career grew please um, yeah thanks I'd, I'd like to say it was all part of a huge plan um, you know and i know that we have posting departments and career management. But I, I think, frankly, I've been extremely lucky uh, to, to have the sort of career in the military that, that, I, that I did have. Um, you know, as I said, went through Sandhurst, um, going through the post-university course, which is much shorter and sharper than the course, for the, the, the standard commissioning course at the time. Um, I was even on a platoon commander's warning because I'd the basis of my experience at that stage was a two-week bridge camp in, in Ripon, um, whereas others had uh, Territorial Army commissions and right. uh, other huge experience. So, you know, I was still trying to put my webbing together in the first sort of week when, when they were all <laughs> bringing their second set out. So so I don't won't say that my, my sort of start at Sanders was particularly auspicious, 
uh, how they let me back as an instructor, I'll never know. But um, I, I could, but, I could just picture that actually, Chris. You, <laughs> you have doing your best to get your set of webbing together, and everyone who's got their spur kit already um, prepared, and absolutely you look a bit of a muppet. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I tell you, I felt a bit of a muppet as well. <laughs> um, so I go, you know, the young officers, of course, very well run, sort of Chatham and Midley for the for the sappers out there, um, and. Uh, I was then posted out to 3-5 Engineer Regiment uh, in Hamill at the time. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, a BOR soldier, you know, I'd like to say that, not on my own, obviously, but, you know, we won the, the Cold War. Um, yeah. And, you know, the standard sort of uh, soldiering in terms of being able to, you know, go out and lay lay mines, build bridges, um, blow bridges up, you know, all, all the good stuff that would stop the, the Russian hordes from, rolling down the, the various gaps and in, into Germany. Um, it was, I have to say, I was sort of um, almost more interested at, this, at the time with, with everything else that was going on. So um, within 36 hours of turning up in, in Germany, um, I was post or sent on a train up to Norway to take over the 3-5 Engineer Regiment biathlon and cross-country ski team. Oh, nice. Uh, nice. Which was very nice. But very hard work because I, yeah. I really not. I was quite fit in, in those days, but I was. The team had um, most of the the British. Most of the team were either British or um, otherwise biathletes or cross country skiers. So that so the standard was incredibly high, mm. and I had to go from you know sort of basic general fitness to to actually try to understand how to stand up on skis, uh, and then move quickly, very very rapidly. But you know, fantastic introduction. So six weeks on skis and then and then back to troop commanding then taking my troop off to to southern france to go and exercise with the french and off to berlin to sort of stand in for the berlin troop um and a little bit more cross-country skiing uh and after that i was then posted back to junior leaders uh where i started or or uh, continued and developed the, the cross-country skiing to cat to take those at age 16 all the way through rather than sort of at the at the age of 18 um and of course being doing some true commanding as well so, so that's interesting because uh, i know you're going to uh, i know you're going to share with us the rank you attain eventually now what interests me is because i know when i did my physical training instructors course from a from a, an fe field engineering career that was put on hold really combat engineering because then I was working in the gym, so my promotion stopped. How did that? Because I mean, I suppose going skiing and and Bavaria and, and biathletes, that's like would be considered as a bit of a Gucci tour. So, what did? How did that affect your military career? Um, yeah, again, following the theme of of not excelling, uh, going through training at Santos, um, I think I was probably a middle of the road officer. And there are clearly those more senior officers that appreciate the sort of sporting aspect um, and all that brings in terms of you know health, fitness, teamwork, etc. Um, and others um, who perhaps were less appreciative and frankly saw my time away as as you know uh, a waste of time and the fact yeah. that I wasn't commanding soldiers and and it you know and and, and everything in between. So. Um, I won't say it necessarily sort of prevented me from moving forward, but, um, you know, it was that I even had one, one officer write on my report 
you know, time to sort of, you know, stop doing sport and, you know, and start buckling down and doing some work, which yeah. may well have just been a reflection on my ability to be able to be a true commander. Or a, and um, it may well have, have reflected on his ability to understand that variety is the spice of life and the experience you glean from that is really useful. Um, yeah, and actually I, I didn't take that particularly seriously because I was still um, fencing sort of in the army championships and taking teams from, you know, uh, 3-9 Engineer Regiment where I was, you know, the CO a little bit later and right. doing triathlon uh, as a full colonel. And, uh, you know, so I, I think, frankly, you know, it's entirely possible to have a, a reasonable sporting career. I'm looking at General Ty Urch, you know, he's currently the Chief Royal Engineer and he's he's still a incredibly good squash player. So, you know, I think in many ways it's it's a way of, of um, you know, de-stressing, keeping fit. And if you're physically fit, you know, and you will know this very well, you know, it certainly helps maintaining sort of mental fitness. And, you know, as I found out many years later, you know, 12, 13 hour days in the office day after day, if you're physically fit, you know, you can, your brain can just about keep up mm. uh, you know, with those sorts of, um, of challenges as well. So, yeah, yeah, so a little bit further, I mean, I wouldn't say I had a standard um, sort of engineer sort of officer career, but I was lucky enough to have troop command, uh, squadron commands, in, including a UN tour in Angola. And then, I, as I mentioned, I was CO39 engineer regiment looking yeah. after the, the Royal Air Force in, in wherever they were. Uh, including on a big six-month exercise out in Oman, exercise so surreal, which was fabulous. Um, staying with the Corps, I was uh, Chief of Staff in HQ Royal Engineers uh, TA, so I set that up for three months. Um, I was also regimental or acting regimental colonel for six months as well. Um, so that was that was the sort of sapper side of, of my career. As I mentioned, lots of instructing uh so a troop commander taking two troops of cadets through Sandhurst um, as, a, as a major. I took uh, commanding Royal Allen Company, which one of the best jobs in the army, taking young potential uh, officer cadets and giving them a little bit of extra confidence or, or skills that may, may otherwise have been lacking to enable them to, to pass the commissioning course. And what, what, what in particular did you enjoy about that? I, 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 Probably guess, you know, because I, I, I really love training men, women from not knowing to knowing something in different varieties of combat engineering or physical fitness or mind fitness. What did you find most rewarding? Yeah, I think it's, it's basically being able to identify uh, with help from the, the Army Officer Selection Board that were, you know, did their own job in terms of assessing the, the suitability of these individuals. And then just looking at them develop, you know, with a standard, the standard course or by producing specific exercises for the individuals to help them adjust, develop and, you know, move on. And, and I'm, you know, I'm, and I'm, I see lots of the products of Roel and Company who successfully gone through the commissioning course, successfully commanded soldiers. And actually, many of them now come out the other end and are holding down challenging jobs around the world. Um, including, uh, yeah, one I'm, I'm now doing some work with React, which is used to be called Team Rubicon, which takes a whole bunch of blue light, uh, fire, uh, police, and ex-military, um, and it's a military charity that does sort of um, disaster relief and response right. okay. nationally and across the world. 
and the ops officer is one of my former uh, Royal Allen cadets. So, oh, you know, it's wow. great to see, you know, the, the success and the, the ability, particularly at the age of 18 to 19, that individuals can can change within, within only a few weeks. So that was hugely rewarding. Um, and probably the sort of, you know, the, as I say, one of the, one of the highlights of my career as well. And then after that, um, old, old jobs that don't really sort of sit anywhere. I two years working in defence intelligence. That was fascinating at the sort of turn, the end of the Cold War. So where we turned our attention away from the former Soviet Union to a degree and started looking at the rest of the world. Um, an instructor at uh, the Royal Military College of Science, as it was then at uh, Shrivenham. Um, and then after that, I was due to be posted to London to go and take on uh, Terrier and Trojan, the two sort of engineer tanks, um, towards completion. Um, And due to a whole variety of different reasons, I ended up going to the Geneva Centre for Security Policy uh, in Switzerland and spending nine months on a fabulous course trying to really understand at the age of 39, you know, what the international environment was all about, sort of politics and uh, how defence fitted in amongst all of that with some Americans, uh, Europeans and Russians, um, you know, on on this this course where I think it had been set up for Western European to educate Eastern European uh, soldiers, uh, civil servants and diplomats in, you know, how to do things. Um, it didn't quite work out by then because the, there were some incredibly bright Eastern Europeans who, who frankly were, you know, uh, very, very comfortable, aware, and went on to do amazing things as well. So, how did you find the processes and culture between the Eastern Europeans, the Europeans, the Americans, uh, with the British processing methods? If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, yes, it does. I mean, you know, I think somebody's. If it hasn't done, been done already, somebody could probably write a PhD on, on all of that. Um, it was it was very interesting seeing that sort of, I won't say it was a clash of cultures, because the sort of military and defence theme running through it mm, was, yeah. um, you know, something we were all familiar with. And, and it's that's something which I've seen, you know, is, is international defence individuals, particularly mili- serving military, they all have a there's a the common theme of, of service of uh, you know being within a within a defense and military setting that yeah. brings you together and there there are more similarities than differences with civil servants uh, and particularly later when i i ended up working at, at nato headquarters in different roles it was quite interesting to see that the military are very much here's a problem let's solve it let's get on and make a difference on the civil service and the diplomatic and political side, it was much more awareness of, of what was going on in London or capitals, mm, yeah. um, sensitivities. Uh, you know, I learned actually there that doing nothing for a little while and seeing how things develop sometimes could be the right answer, yeah. not something that sits naturally from our side. And then looking at the international environment, I wouldn't say there was there were there were huge differences, lots of differences in, in expertise, lots of national, you know, challenges and differences. You know, if you come from the Baltic states, your the size of your military is not huge. Mm. So operating at the divisional core level is is something that that isn't, you know, really natural at all and, and requires sort of you know training and education. 
but their awareness of what was going on, you know, more than made up for that. Thank you for that. So you attain the rank of brigadier. Um, what what prompted you to decide, right, that's it, I'm off, I've had enough? Uh, really difficult. Um, and uh, I hope my family don't listen to this. Um, but fundamentally, uh, I was, I'd was i finished um, a job at NATO headquarters where I was the secretary to the NATO military committee. Absolutely fabulous. Um, three years sitting in between the military uh, of NATO and the the political side um you know and i quite often represented the military in in the in the political um environment of nato headquarters and after that it was quite difficult because i wasn't sure where i would be going the mm-hmm. you know possibility of staying in brussels which would have given a little bit more stability for the family uh, in the end uh, and i have a vote of thanks to the uh, head of head of the engineers at the time who who i think argued on my my for my case, I was going to go off to the Falklands. But I'd realised that at that stage that my two daughters, twin daughters, were uh, 12 years old. Right. They had been to five school, schools in their seven years in yeah. three different countries. And this was going to just extend the school, bouncing around the schools, the types of education. So it was time for stability. Uh, mm. My wife and I, my wife was ex, ex-Royal Air Force, we decided that we wanted to, to have the girls with us and not not go down the boarding school route. So it was simple. Either the, the girls and my wife went off and waited somebody somewhere for, for me to come come back in two years' time, or you know, I'd have to leave. And you know, I, for obvious reasons, I don't regret leaving at the time. Uh, I would have loved to have continued serving, but you know, I had a family, and so. I was lucky enough to get a job as a NATO civil servant uh, down in Luxembourg at the, at the time, the NATO Maintenance and Supply Agency, um, as one of the directors there. And that gave the girls uh, the age, from the ages of 12 to 18, one school, one country, one language, you know, one, one place, uh, and a set of friends as well, you know, as they left. That's a critical time in the schooling, really. And and isn't it interesting, because what I picked up there is that you used your various stops in schools as a child yourself as maybe a benchmark or a template to say, hmm, I know what they could go through and I know what I prefer them to go through. And obviously making that decision with your wife too. So that's very interesting. Now, you've mentioned though that you then got a, a, a job with uh, NATO. What was the transition like that from from being in the military to uh, and not knowing a great deal about your time with NATO yet? What was it like to go from the military to NATO and effectively you're a civilian then, aren't you? Yeah, actually, it was. I mean, I cheated because the NATO Maintenance and Supply Agency. Um, whilst it was an entirely civilian organisation in Luxembourg, had strong links to the military, and a lot of the individuals um, in uh, NAMSA at the time in Luxembourg were ex-military. So so it was working in the defence environment. It was working still in the, in the public sector, effectively. It was working with a lot of ex-military, uh, albeit very international, I think about 20-something different different nations represented, 
So in many ways, it was on that side, it wasn't too, too challenging. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to move from Brussels two hours down the road by car to Luxembourg, but I had to find a flat, uh, you know, or somewhere to live. Um, and in the end, that was quite challenging. I literally went down to Luxembourg for a day, looked at six properties, picked one of them and said, right, that's where we're going to live. Um, in hindsight, as we moved out uh, and broke the contract with the the owner um, 18 months later, because there was mould growing everywhere and the right. heating wasn't working over Christmas, you know, I perhaps could have spent a little bit more time actually looking at making sure we got the right place in the, in the right location. But in many ways, you know, that the, on the job front, for me, it was pretty familiar. For the girls, we moved at Christmas. Um, so obviously, you know, the set school, school year starts in September. And what had happened is all the cliques, uh, the you know, 12-year-old girls, had all got together in September. We all got to know each other by yeah. December. Yeah. So when the girls arrived in January as, as newbies, and they probably the only two newbies in the whole school, that was very challenging for them um you know and it took them a while to to sort of you know to settle make friends and establish themselves so that that was a challenge um for my wife she had been you know serving in the royal air force and it took a while for her to then be able to to find a job um you know and and to be able to work part-time there and language you know the the language of the organization was was english and french the two languages of NATO. So, mm. you know, being able to speak some French, I was I was fortunate that I was able to 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 um, to be able to you know understand everything that was going on more or less. Some of the challenges is you know I had a, a boss who the only way I can sort of work it out is that he was um, a bit jealous of my network and frustratingly um, wouldn't let me use that network to the benefit of the organisation and and of NATO. Um, something about self-preservation or uh, yeah there are all sorts of reasons so there were frustrations yeah that's that's interesting and I know actually thank you for sharing that uh, and and what I want what I'd like to do is dig a little bit deeper on the fact because because I know how positive you are and as sappers we are aren't we yeah Uh, and the thing is that you said a few things there that uh, well with hindsight Right, so you were living in an apartment that had mould, and 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 then your your daughters went to started a school in January, right? When all of the cliques had established themselves from starting in the previous September, how long were things then? Yeah, I won't say that there weren't occasions when I was quietly thinking to myself, did I did I make the right choice here? You know, should I have stayed in? Would would my family and back in, in, in probably London or the UK and me in the Falklands, you know, whizzing backwards and forwards uh, and maybe have, having holidays in Ascension Island, you know, that would have been nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, was it the right, the right choice? Having said that, you know, there are some really lovely people uh, and so often the people that you work with, whether that's in the army, outside of the army, you know, wherever you happen to be, yeah. make all the difference. Um, and, also the you know the the responsibility nato salaries are not bad but fundamentally you're you're away from home you know you're out of your own country you're working in another culture you know and luxembourg had its own particular culture as well uh, luckily there was a sort of big expat community 
And of course, I've, you know, I've still got Luxembourgish friends. Um, but it, but it isn't, you know, it's not a big city. It's, it's a sort of, uh, you know, a village where everybody knows each other and that's good and bad. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there were, there were times when I thought, you know, is this, is this going to work? Um, you know, am I going to have to try something different? Uh, we also had uh, a change about after about 18 months, um, the NATO Secretary, Secretary General at that time had met, basically driven through um, agency reform, which meant we were then having to reform and work, pull three agencies together, one in Paris, one in, in Luxembourg and one in Hungary. Um, and I got a change of jobs. Um, the general manager asked me if I would be the chief of staff and deputy general manager, which added a lot of extra stress because effectively what we were doing was uh, continuing the day job and pulling the three agencies together, rewriting all the documentation, all the SOPs, uh, all the, the processes. Um, and it would have been nice to have started with some, but there were virtually none. So we had to start from scratch and then crash these three agencies into one. And that was what you did in your spare time whilst you weren't doing the day job, you know. So it was it was quite hard work. And and that meant that my wife had to be the the rock, you know, on which the rest of the family, myself and my daughters, depended at the time, which was quite stressful and challenging for her, as you might imagine. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. In country, you know, with with no uh, you know, rare rare visits from from family and you know, we're just that little bit further away. Um but you know, you 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 talk, you get through it, you know, and you try and make the best you can. Thank you for that. Uh, I, I really appreciated you being open uh, with that because you know it's like when people say, "Oh, yeah, it's it's really easy," you know, it, it's success. And it, and sometimes when you reflect on it, you say, "Well, yeah, it took fifteen years to become an overnight success." And, and and guess what? There were challenges, and there were times where I cried myself to sleep, or at least I felt like doing that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it it does. I mean, I you know, emotion obviously sort of you know is, is always is always there, and yeah, you know, as as military people, you know, we we're always sort of um, you know we we cope, we we make it work, and we do, you know, and that's yeah. a huge. You know, benefits of being in the military and afterwards as you transition to civilian life is the resilience, you know, is the self-belief and confidence, even if it might look like a sort of slightly thin veneer at times, you know, <laughs> and doing the uh, paddling like like there's no tomorrow under, under the surface yeah, and driving yeah. the calm on, on the top. Not but well. you realise everybody else has got the challenges. You've always got friends somewhere, you know, you can talk to and <laughs> the family unit, is is you know, pretty important mm. in being able to help yourselves through it as well. And and that's le that's led nicely into and excellently into this question of what's the secret to your success? What's the big driver? And and I know you, I, I know I could see the expression on your face there. There's all sorts going on. Yeah. So what? How could you? Put that into a few words, and I'm not sure that's possible, really. Yeah, and I'm trying to make it sort of, you know, I wouldn't say success, but um, I think, you know, there, there are skills you develop in the, in the military that are generic, you know. So it's, it's 
fundamentally, in my view, and we've really touched on it, it's it's your ability to understand people. You know, where are they coming from? What are their challenges? What are their aspirations? You know, what are they bringing to the party? And and what 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 are the barriers for them to be successful? And you apply that to yourself as well. Um, so I think flexibility, uh, and again, the ability to just you know, we switch jobs every one to two to three years. You know, and sometimes you can find yourself doing something completely different. You know, three years late. You know, three every three years, and that we take it for granted. But actually, that's that's not that's not normal in civilian mm-hmm. life. A lot of you know, there's more flexibility and, and movement these days. But actually, the the amount of different jobs that where you bounce around and different levels you operate at, um, that gives enormous flexibility and enormous resilience as well. The ability to get on with people, as I mentioned, um, the the network that you have within the military, and that you build, and also I think your ability to solve problems, and on top of that, um, you know the, the the military skills that you, that you come out come out with as well. You know, and that depends whether you're you know in the engineers, the artillery, uh, in the navy or the air force, you will have had quite a lot of training as you come through. Um, quite often more than the private sector would be willing to pay for. Yeah. So actually just reflecting on the utility of, of that and make, making sure that it, you know, it finds its way onto your CV in a way that civilians will understand what that training course you did that you've forgotten about. It doesn't really matter. But actually it does matter because it's given you another skill set and it's built up you know, all of the different skills that you can then bring to a civilian organization. Um, so I'd say it's a, it's a bit of that. Um, you know, the army's trained me a lot in a lot of, lot of different ways. And I've been very fortunate mm. to, 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 to use that as much as I could. Yeah. And, and I, I, I like um, your self questioning technique of how to understand, like what challenges, what are the issues, what, what's happening and, and the flexibility and social and, you know, it only dawned on me, uh, I'm not even sure it dawned on me until I'd left the engineers, that in the engineers, you quite often got posted uh, because of your trade uh, and what strengths they needed. So you would go to a, an, an engineer regiment on your own, whereas usually infantry or artillery would move as a battalion. We would be just plucked pl- uh, just posted in and dropped into a unit and then we'd have to get social we'd have to understand yes. understand yes. the different characteristics which i found very useful how did you how did that uh, transpire in your um yeah, it, for, for me it kept things really fresh you know there was no chance of getting getting bored because you know the next job was you know 12 15 18 months away um, it was almost certainly in a different place doing doing some different stuff, um, which meant that, as you say, you had to understand the environment very quickly, mm, you know, work yeah. out what the, what the levers were, um, you know, and how, how you could then make yourself useful in amongst all of that. Um, and I think that that, as you say, and it, you know, there's, there's the sort of family regiments in the infantry and, and you know the rest of, of other parts of the military, um, and there are you know those like like the corps, like the engineers, where 
where you, it's not just the, the family is moving, the children changing schools, the wife is maybe working or not working. Um, but, you know, you yourself are having to assimilate rapidly um, yeah. into a new organisation. And I think, again, that builds the ability to get to know people quickly. Of course, making that assumption outside, you know, you'll go and knock on somebody's, your next door neighbour's door in the military, you know, and you, you're all coming from the same background and you're making sure that they're settling in okay. You do that in the civilian world and some of them go, yeah, what, what do you want? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or it's, not necessarily quite the same. Um, you know, maybe it's not like that, but it's not quite the same thing. You know, so so there are transitions yeah. that are important. You know, for the family and and the individuals. But I think again that resilience, that uh, flexibility, that ability to understand the situation, find the solution, you know, sort out the wheat from the chaff, and yeah. then make something work. Is is it's not unique to the military, but it's something we do, yeah. you know, t- every day of our of our working life. And particularly well, in fact, you've just given me a flashback there to the four man room bed space. You put your locker, your your, your top locker, just a. This is my space. If you want yeah. to come in here, knock on. And they think like a civilian would think, what are you knocking on a top box for? But it was. That's the domain, the peaceful area, the sanctuary, if you like. So thank you for giving me an insight into the secret of your success, which which appears to me to be flexibility and to be able to move with change. So equally, and we've already discovered, because you've been kind enough to share, that there were a few moments where you were questioning your decisions how do you deal with failure? Yeah, probably badly, I would say. <laughs> but um, <laughs> luckily, I, yeah, luckily, I would like to think that I haven't had to deal with it sort of, you know, too too often. I think fundamentally, it's it's to sort of, you know, it's to have the confidence to stop and actually say, hang on, you know, what's just happened here? To do a little bit of analysis, to ask why something happened, because it's very easy to to be disappointed in yourself to lose confidence once you once you've made a mistake but actually the context may be that you didn't make the mistake at all you know maybe somebody else made a made a mistake or created the circumstances where you had and in the end you know ended up having no no choice so you know ask why what happened analyze it why it happened Allow a pause for emotion because, you know, there'll always be emotion with failure. You know, it'll be disappointment in yourself, disappointment in others sometimes, disappointment and frustration in the circumstances that have created that 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 failure. But more often than not, it's, un, you know, trying to understand why it happened, what to then to, to do about it, um, you know, to make it better. You know, and if you genuinely made a mistake at work without really understanding it, but, you know, it was your fault that something didn't happen, you know, if you need to apologise, go and do that. If you need to learn from it, and, and frankly, this is, you know, I still, still maintain some links with the military and I'm constantly asked um, by those outside um, in some, some of the sort of discussions I have, you know, how does the military deal with failure? Well, the military deals with failure 
and treat more often than not as a learning experience. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Wrong. Why did it go mm-hmm. wrong? What can we do to sort it out? Let's make it work better the next time. So I think that's that's the sort of approach that I would like to think I take, um, you know, and and not to make that same mistake again and and learn from others as well as yourself. But also, you know, as I say, making that the time for the emotions to flow out because they'll be there alongside. And if you don't sort them out at the time, you'll be, you know, thinking about the mistake you made for decades later it'll be getting in the way and it'll act yeah, as a yeah. sort of block potentially. So important to recognise, you know, that the emotions will come along with with failure and, you know, failure in whose terms? Uh, I think yeah. that's that's always worth asking as well. Yeah, exactly. So, mm. Yeah. And, yeah, I hope that that's some sort of answer. Yeah, that's, what I like. that's a brilliant answer. And, I mean, so so really the stop, stop analyse or stop regroup yeah. And, ask, and ask questions, because uh, yeah. questions are the answers, aren't they? Because I, I remember um, on a, on a it was a training exercise for EOD, and actually I neutralised the device excellently. There was, no, there was no danger, so I thought, until the feedback was given. And he failed me. And, and the guy who failed me, great dear, brilliant. I would not question him. He was a fantastic bomb disposal officer. He found me, and I beat myself up severely on it. And then afterwards, I thought, yeah, well, totally right uh, that I should fail. Because what had happened, right, everything on the actual uh, neutralising the device went great. But what I hadn't factored in, and and, and my number two was uh, MT, uh, and, and POL, so we knew all about f- f- lubrication fuel. We had uh, uh, a big tank bowser above the device, and we calculated the clearance zone wrong. We put a few hundred meters in; it should have been three quarters of a mile at least. Because if I hadn't have uh, neutralized that device, people would have died. So it, well, I didn't fail on that. That. What I failed on was my intel. Yeah, and it, and again, I think you know, less lessons learned. The guy could have easily said, technically, you passed. Yeah. Would you have learned the lesson in the same way? Probably not. No, so, no, no I think it's not. as you say, good, good call from the instructor, even that, even though it was probably a hard one. Yeah, it was. It was a tough lesson. Uh, I thought, oh, well, I've done it. Mm. <laughs> so, so, you've you've mentioned a lot, and and and. During our discussion, I've discovered that your network is quite extensive. How important do you think having a strong social and business network is to your success? And, and in fact, to anyone's success? I would say, frankly, it's, it's very important. Um, the social aspect can be professional as well. You know, and there is, you know, in the military, we have a, sort of blurred lines between your social and, and the sort of business and that and that happens in you know in, in the civilian environment as well you know I, I won't say that if you're playing golf you know and doing work on the golf course and I was a very bad golfer so <laughs> not something that uh, I've competed particularly relate to um, but I you know it, it it is important and in the transition process I think you know one of the and, and I'll mention it later I think is the 
the issue of the network, you know, and the build-up of the business network, because we can be quite sensitive, you know, about whether or not we should call up, you know, X, Y, or Z, you know, and, and talk about jobs with people. Whereas actually in the civilian in world, in the business environment, you know, anything that can help the business move on or get people get a job, you know, is 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 okay. Um, and I think we we as military should recognize that when we when we join the civilian environment, using a network to get to get work, to get ahead, to make make connections, you know, that may well be uh, sort of slightly selfishly beneficial to, to both parties in the future, absolutely necessary. Because, you know, when I was leaving the military the first time, um, I, I went put my CV on LinkedIn, sort of, you know, all very new to me at the time. Um, and I was shortlisted without even asking for two jobs. Um, not, not that I went for those, but, you know, having that initial network, somebody that knew yeah. somebody that ended up sort of know, knowing me, um, and I, you know, a few conversations, and, and I was being offered offered work, which was, you know, amazing to me that I, I, that that would that would actually happen. So, so yeah, business networks and social networks, because as you transition, you know, it will be culturally different. It will be some some changes, uh, and maintaining those links with the military, you know, because those civilian links won't quite have the same flavour. Um, one of the reasons I've gone back into to react is because actually, you know, we were doing security at the uh, Birmingham Commonwealth Games or the vaccination centres uh, sort of locally, is you've got a whole bunch of ex-military all coming together, you know, and there's no doubt you, you miss that. You miss that type of camaraderie. Yeah. And that, you know, is one of the ways of, of, of also getting it, albeit through a military charity. So the social network is supporting you as you move through from the military into the civil world and the business network helping you find the job, find out what it is you want to do, find opportunities. Yeah, the, you, you can't have enough, frankly, uh, in my view. Well, thank you for that. I, I picked up on something there that, uh, <clears throat> and maybe you'll understand this phrase once I frame it, what's in it for me? I suppose, because you, you, you did touch on the fact that you were interviewed or shortlisted, accepted for two jobs that, that you didn't take. So what? how much did what's in it for me and what's in it for you, the employer, does comes into it? And what's your selection process for that? I think I think it's the, the sort of job finding sort of aspect of it is, you know, and if you're if you're in a fortunate position to be able to have a choice of jobs, I was still thinking, what is it I want to do? You know, uh, earn money was you know high up there. Yeah, you know, yeah. Going through through school, um, you know, uh, so so needing to earn money was was up there, but it wasn't the only consideration. Where did I want to work? Um, you know, there was another job in 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 Jordan. Uh, doing some some training there, and I spoke to one of the guys who was actually leaving that organisation right, because okay. he said, you know, it's not a nice place to work. You know, the expats aren't treated very well, um, and I'm I'm leaving. And I thought, well, there's a red flag. Definitely <laughs> don't. <laughs> um, but but again, the network. I knew somebody who knew somebody working yeah. for that that firm. Um, you know, ex-military. So. 
you know, I could I could ring email him and ring him up and have that conversation. Um, so I think it's it's quite challenging. You know, I would say that, and I actually spent money on talking to him uh, with a mate who was a life and, and business coach um, because I was trying to work out what is it I want to do next. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I want, you know, I need to earn money, but actually, where do I want to do that? What is it I want to do? Where am I going to be feel comfortable and, and, and happy? Where are my family going to have, you know, good education for my daughters? Where's my wife going to enjoy living, you know, and potentially be able to work? All of those factors come into play, you know, and, and, and I went from, Christ, I need a job. You know, I need to go, excuse me. I need to sort of, you know, transition and get earning to hang on. You know, it's not just about earning for earning's sake. You know, I can get a job. I'm lucky enough to be able to have a number of options. And actually, it's about the environment. It's about the whole picture uh, yeah. of what to do, where it is. Is it going to be fulfilling for me? Are the family going to be able to, you know, do all the things that we want to be able to do um, because there's no point, you know, jumping from the frying pan into the fire and then finding out you're actually hating the, the, the job yeah. or the environment or, or that's all good, but the living in, you know, situation is, isn't good. So, so yeah, that's I hope, some sort of answer to the question. No, it, it is entirely. And, and that leads me nicely into how you've positioned yourself and, and what sort of, coaching guidance support mentoring you've had as an individual because i know and i would imagine that you've given some great tips because you've already said that you you've brought some officer cadets through from nothing to something and then you've seen them being in charge of various projects uh and watched how they've developed and grow so how important do you think coaching and mentoring has been to shaping you as an individual and and also how it could help someone else become the best yeah. they can be. I think all, all military people and, and natural coaches and mentors, because you know, after you've done whether it's on the, you know, whether you're a Lance Corporal or a or a lieutenant, um, you know, a warrant officer or or a colonel, you know, you are spending time looking after people and helping those people who've who are going through what you've been through. So within the military, where you know there's a natural degree of coaching, both professionally and and sort of you know personally. Um, I've been very lucky. I've had some great commanding officers. I've had some great you know um, senior NCOs that I've worked with. Who, frankly, you know, they didn't know it at the time, but they were mentoring me, particularly when oh, I was yeah. you know a, a sort of you know, young troop commander or even even an OC or a CO. You know, you, you're learning all the time from people. So. As far as sort of coaching and mentoring is is concerned, for me it was extremely helpful to have that conversation. Frankly, at the age of you know fifty odd, talking to somebody about okay, well, what is it you want to do now? And I went, I don't know. <laughs> and you know, <laughs> embarrassing, really. You know, you got the kids leaving school, going, you know, what are what are we going to do? Yeah, and you've got I, dad and saying, you're, suppo you're supposed to have all the answers, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, oh, it was easy for the children. I basically said, go and do what you want to do. Uh, and they said, well, why don't you do that? Oh, all right. <laughs> that's <laughs> that, probably the best, best coaching and mentoring I got from, from the daughters. But, uh, that, that's a, yeah, that's a great question, yeah. Yeah, I do know people have gone off, you know, and actually deliberately taken time out 
between leaving the military to, to starting a civilian job. You know, first, you can because, you know, you can take a couple of months to, to draw breath, to really work out what it is you want to do, where you want to do it, all that sort of thing. You know, others have walked, you know, have gone out and walked for sort of six, seven weeks across the, the north of Spain to Santiago to Compostela or, yeah, yeah. You know, or other things where they've just gone off, given themselves a chance to, to reflect, look back over the successes of the military career, which actually can end up working into a CV as well, and also reflecting what it is, you know, you want to do next. Um, not always, you know, you don't always come out with the right answer or something definitive but it can help, you know, in the transition process, you know, and, and realise that you're, you're going to be doing something something different in a different culture, in a different environment. And, um, and to expand on that, because you've already touched on it, which is, which is great because uh, we're going down a structured path that brings us to answer the next question, which is how valuable, how valuable and transferable are the skills that you learn and discover in the military? Yeah, again, again, very valuable. And you've already mentioned, Joe, the you know the soft skills, um, and you, these are skills that are not unique in the military, but pretty much everybody in the military has them, which isn't necessarily to the same degree in in the civil environment. So you know the fact that you you turn up, you do what you say you're going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's not always the case in anywhere, frankly, but it's more so in the military than elsewhere. Uh, I found, um, you know, timeliness. Um, I won't say that I'm always on time, uh, but well, you've been pretty much on time for our meetings. Anyway, <laughs> well, that's 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 two successes, so that's that's good. <laughs> uh, the you know honesty and trust that you can expect or you expect within the military, not always necessarily so so obvious. The ability to sort of see see and identify what the real problem is. Again, you know, I mentioned sorting out the wheat from the chaff and to come up with an answer. I don't think it's just uniquely a, a, you know, a, a Royal Engineer thing. I think it's true across all of the military that we're good at being able to identify what the real problem is and then yeah. come up with, with solutions. And that's at any level. Um, the hands-on aspect, you know, it doesn't matter how senior you are as an NCO or an officer. You, know, you can still get in amongst it, get your hands on and then step back when, when you need to. Working with people, confidence, uh, and leadership and management again at all levels at all times, um, and the the me mental and physical resilience and strength that you can keep going when, frankly, others others might not. So that, lots of the sort of soft skills, and then of course you know we've already talked about the training that you've got in the military, you know, and recognizing how that can then be translated into you know, civvy English, if you like, on your CV, yeah, yeah. where you've been through lots of training that will have given you skills that should, many of them, be applicable, you know, hard skills as opposed to the soft skills, um, all of which, you know, combine to, you know, in one individual. So, but it's important to draw those out and don't assume that those are taken for granted out in the civilian world, you know, highlight them and the strengths that you can bring to that company and as always in, in, you know, sort of recruiting, it's all about working out what problem you're going to solve that the company has got. Mm. Um, and I think, if you, you know, that's, that's pretty key. What problem has the company got? Why are they hiring for a role? And how are you going to answer their question um, and solve it for them? But that's yeah. standard you know, recruitment stuff. 
and and that's that's great because I think that in fact I was speaking to someone who's still serving. He's he's a client of mine for for financial investments, and and he's he's in a position where he's not sure about whether to stay in or leave, and. And we were talking about what his qualifications are, and his qualifications are immense. If you transfer his skills into civilian speak, it's just amazing. And yet, he's not confident of getting a job in civil street. And, and I, yeah. Think, yeah. I think I that mean, could be an issue. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I think it's. I have thought at, at various stages of, of of my my sort of military time about leaving you know um because i think it's always healthy to just think about you know is this the right time to leave you know what what's waiting for me in the future in the military what else might i be doing is there something else that i'd rather do it's i think it's always healthy when you're serving to have that mm. you know ask yourself that sort of question at various stages um you know even if the answer is well, you know quite often no i'm happy with doing what i'm doing i'm prepared to give the military a bit more of a go you don't know, of course, that you're going to get a job until you jump. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, yeah. On the other yeah. hand, there's a lot of help out there. I mean, there's, you know, all the, all the support and help that, that you provide, Joe. Yeah, there, there are many other organisations, many of them run by veterans, you know, to actually help people. Um, and that's on the professional recruiting side. Uh, you know, I can mention a few, you know, if you like. Yeah, yeah, um, please, please do. Yeah, yeah. Sort of job Oppo, um, United Defence and Security Solutions. Uh, they've got a recruiting arm. A chap called John Stevenson in the Forces Transition Group, uh, X Mill. There's a whole bunch of yeah, leaders yeah. link. There's, there's a whole bunch of organisations, you know, that are out there to help veterans get get jobs. Um, and on top of that, there's a whole bunch of charities and, and other organisations helping those who feel they need help, whether that's mental health, physical health, transitioning, uh, well-being, you know, uh, justice issues, finance issues. There are organisations out there, many of them charities, you know, who can who can help. So it's you're not on your own when you're transitioning. It might feel like that sometimes, yeah. but there are you know, there are people and organisations that are prepared to help. And I think, you know, as far as you're in, you're in the chap you're talking about with lots of transferable skills, you know, ultimately it's for that individual to work out what it is he wants to do yeah, and yeah. to ask himself those questions. Yeah. I think it's pretty clear from what you're saying, he'll be able to get a job. Um, but is it the right, the right job for him? Yeah. And secondly, that, you know, we all have to leave at some stage, mm. you know, ultimately. So, you know, if you can be, the master of, of of destiny and decide when you want to leave when it's right for you, and that's never an easy 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 one. Or for many people, it's not easy. Um, then you know, I think start working on the whole resettlement and transition piece as soon as possible. Uh, and frankly, you know, I'm having conversations with headquarters Southwest and and others um, about starting the resettlement process from the time you join the army. Yeah. So, no, that's very interesting because when I when I coach when I'm looking at the mastermind that I run, one of the one of the important subjects we look at is okay, you're setting up a business. What's your exit strategy? Yes, because, I think that's yeah. You should always be 
working through that. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you start with the end in mind, it makes the journey so much better, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, and it also, I, again, I think, I think you're right. You know, on the, we've talked about some of the uh, aspects that, that military service will bring, including confidence. But it, you know, that confidence can look pretty thin at times or can be pretty thin at times, you know, because we don't know what it's like in, in Civvy Street. You know, when you're serving, you know, you've got what you think it might look like, but actually, you know, it can can be different. But, but and it, oh, go on, sorry. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean it's just just to say that actually, you know, we're all we're all humans outside and yeah. inside. We all start as civilians and finish as civilians pretty much. So, you know, actually if you then compare the quality of the of the individuals across the military and put that in comparison across the civilian environment you know you won't be surprised to see that actually you know those people in the military bring a whole range of skills and you know characteristics and performance that will stand them in great stead within yeah. the, uh, the civilian civilian environment once they're settled and they've found what's good for them and I always found it interesting. And hey, I put my hand up to say, uh, I, I probably well, when I was in the military, I always thought that I was, I was a part-time civilian because I like, I like to think that I had also had a, a, a career or a living outside of the military. The 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 old adage, civilians, mm -mm, right? I won't, we both know what the following words are. But then I thought, well, no, I am a civilian, and I've got to get yeah. got to get rid of that uh, that that mentality. You've got to be left behind. Does that make sense? Yes, it yes it does. You know, I mean, ultimately, when you when you're leaving, you're jumping into the civilian pool. You know, mm -hmm. and no matter how much we might feel uncomfortable about that, you know, ultimately, if you allow your military expertise to to shine, you know, you will shine in in that in that civilian pool, but it's the big pool. It's yeah. culturally much broader, you know, and that's, that's, that can be quite a shock for some people. Um, so I would say that, you know, and it's very clear, I think 80, 90% of, of the sort of, you know, military settle, find themselves, you know, reasonably comfortable within the sort of civilian environment quite quickly. Not the case for everyone. And it's quite interesting. I've mentioned React as an organization. Yeah, that yeah, People, you know, get back together with those ex-military people. There are other military, you know, uh, breakfast, sort of ex-service breakfast clubs, uh, re other reunions, you know, and actually there's there's no doubt, you know, you form generally stronger bonds in the military than compared in, in the civilian environment. And, I, you know, I certainly find it's it's quite healthy occasionally to get back in, you know, into that sort of military sort of ex-military groove, uh, you know, and have great conversations and beers with with veterans, yeah. you know, and, you know, those those bonds are good to to maintain, you know, yeah. because well, it's, it's a nice environment. Yeah, well, it's it's like when, when I, I I discovered you're a sapper, right? Mm. I know straight away your pedigree. I know what your challenges would have been. If you tell me where you've been posted, I, I've got a pretty good idea what you have because – even though you uh, you didn't skirt or brush over it, it, you just said, right, this is how it was. Well, when you were the, a troop commander uh, in BAOR and you were on FTX, whichever one it was, Lionheart or Crusader or whatever, 
I know that that minefield between Div 1, 2, 3, 4 had to go in within 36 hours and you didn't sleep. Then you went on to then you went on to demolitions, bridges, then you went on to something else, and you were pretty chin strapped. Yeah, and it was three three and a half week, four week exercise, and you were literally bouncing from one thing to another. Normally, you know, if it ain't raining, it ain't training, so the weather wasn't particularly good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cold. If you're lucky, you had a, a Spartan uh, or a uh, oh, what were those wheeled vehicles, logistic vehicles. Oh, um, um, what you were you were in the CBRT, the Spartan, or, yeah. or, or the APC. Or, yeah. Or, what was the other one? Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it was, there was a, a sort of uh, big wheeled vehicle, uh, you know, for logistics, for carrying things on the back of. And just between the cab and the carrying area, there was a lot of heat. So, you know, if you were... Oh, on the louvers, yeah. Exactly. You can yeah. stand there and sort of dry out for five <laughs> minutes, you know, if you had the time. Uh, just you know when you were completely soaked but um yeah i mean there were some yeah great memories anyway so so and i know we could we could definitely pull up a sandbag because we could just keep talking for days i'm sure um so what what is it for you next then what what have you got lined up yeah so at the moment i'm you know so i'm in my sort of um early to mid 60s so i'm i'm fortunate enough you know, that I don't have to sort of do a lot of work, you know, and, and I think that's something that I would certainly recommend is, is as you depart the military is to have an understanding of, of you know, what, what money you need, what you need to earn, you know, for yeah. your circumstances. And I've sort of, um, my, my sister's recommended a, a friend of hers who runs a financial sort of uh, planning company and, Occasionally, I go and you know talk to them, and they talk to me about you know what I need to earn or not at various stages. And I think that's that's good to understand because knowing whether you you know whether you need to work for money, how much you need to work for money, yeah, that helps you balance your time. You know, and so so for now, unfortunately, I don't have to do a great deal of work like for sort of you know financially. So as I've mentioned, React, um, doing the operational leaders course that, that can then basically. I mean, I can do disaster response sort of, um, yeah. you know, worldwide. Um, I've done some uh, sort of leadership management training for BMW. Um, I've worked working for United Defence and Security Solutions, uh, which is employs around sort of uh, three, four hundred ex-military, uh, right. run ex, ex-general, but basically looking at offering defence advice at all ranks. Um, so that's worth a look. They've got, as I mentioned, they've got a recruiting arm. So, yeah. you know, they're for basically placing a lot of ex-military and civilian companies. A number of military companies around the world have asked me if I would work for them. Some of them are a bit dodgy. So I think the answer <laughs> is no. Um, and I'm looking to sort of wind that aspect down. I'm still doing some consultancy for my old uh, agency in the NATO Support and Procurement Agency based in Luxembourg. I'm really enjoying that. Um and the other aspect that's taking more and more of our time is working for the Veterans Advisory and Pensions Committee in the Southwest, right. where I'm the vice chair of the committee. And what that does is it looks at, and a small plug here, if I may, yeah. um, is, it, is it looks at ha- how veterans are transitioning, what the quality of life is like, how the government is looking after them or not, how uh, they are being 
sort of you know how their resettlement is going, mm. how how the uh, charities are looking after them as well, and we're at the level where we we make recommendations every six months at the moment back to the minister for armed forces, uh, veterans and uh, families on what policy is working in the southwest, what isn't working, um, and what they should be doing different. Um, so there's there's that connecting connecting the dots in how charities look at looking after the military. Um, and I'm also working with with as secretaries to the national chairs. So you know we actually look at how uh, best practice from one district, one county, one uh, region of the country is is uh, provided, um, and where that can then be passed to to other organisations. So you know I, I stay very interested in veterans, what's working, what isn't working. Uh, where it isn't working in terms of their own pensions, you know, we're able to offer us some advice and guidance on how they might approach a tribunal, you know, in terms of yeah. um, getting their their particular pension reassessed. Um, you know, we're, there's only about 20 of us or 200 across the country, so we can't take every individual veteran, but having an understanding of what isn't working for veterans and then feeding that back into the minister is is, you know, taking more and more of my time. And it's, it's fascinating, you know. Yeah. I like to think that I'm paying back a little bit, um, you know, for for the fantastic time I've had in the military, and helping veterans, you know, particularly those in need, um, you know, having having better lives. Um, well, yeah, well, that's remarkable, and I know that you will be posing some challenging and interesting questions in in a very deep meaning sense to get to the bottom of things and doing your bit to make a difference so thank you for sharing that now the last the colombo question if you like because i love colombo i think mm. he, was, he was great and yeah. it's just one more thing right so before you go chris you've shared with us about being flexible how ex-military and military Pers are really good at coaching and mentoring and questioning techniques are really good and the trust and the time timeliness and the honesty, integrity of military is a really, really important qualities. So what's the one top tip you would give to a veteran, someone who's leaving the military or even, even someone who's a civilian and wants to adopt some of the practices of uh, military personnel, what's the one big tip you'd give that would make the biggest difference with them achieving their success? That's really difficult, Joe, to sort of, you know, narrowing it down. I mean, if I were given three, for example... You know, okay, you I... can be greedy. You know, <laughs> go on. And then I can narrow it down to the top <laughs> tip of those three. I think the first one is sort of, you know, to have self-belief and patience because, you know, there's no doubt that being in the military brings soft and hard skills that are very valuable out in the civilian world. But it's not always evident when you're leaving. You know, it can be quite challenging getting that that job that you want and getting somebody to pay you a decent wage to use those those skills. But I think it will take time. It'll take a little bit of time to you know work out what it is you want to do. And once you've done that, to have the self-belief, confidence and patience to know you will get there you know it may not be the first week or the first month or even frankly the first year you know you may be doing some work 
but maybe not what it, what what it is you really want to do. But yeah. keep plugging away at it, you know, in the in the same way that we know all the military can, and you and you will get there. Yeah. If you need, and this is a sort of subset of that top tip, you know, if you need some education and training to do the transition, I mean, there are lots of companies out there. Um, some of them, frankly, looking, you know, uh, better than others. Let me let me put it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get very, that education. very diplomatic of you. That, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Get that education, training and advice, you know, preferably from veterans who, who know your situation or advi as advised by. Uh, and then the third aspect linked to those two is is know that there's help out there. You know, there's it's not always obvious, not always available, you know, easily available and easily found on the Internet. But the Veterans Gateway, the Office of Veterans Affairs, Vets UK, all sorts, the NHS, there are lots of organisations out there that understand veterans and they're ready, ready to help. Um, some, some more than others. You know, perhaps the NHS, they're willing, and there's op courage and all sorts of things out there where they're trying to help, but they've got their own challenges at the moment. Um, yeah. So, I'd say self belief and, and and patience. Um, use, find out what's out there. Talk to veterans. Talk to people, and find out what's out there. And if you need education and training to get the final job that you really want, then you know, get that education and, and go for it. And, and thank you so much for that. And it's, you know what, I, I actually, and I should have to think how much money's been spent on your training. I, I, I actually did a costing exercise on what it would cost to train me for, for Combat engineer, class one, plumber and pipe fitter, physical training, sort of bomb disposal, specialist, yeah. all the rest. It would it was it was getting close to a million pounds. Absolutely. Yeah. And and you know, very, very rare that you would have that degree of training out in the civilian environment. You know, again, yeah. my conversations with, for example, BMW, you know, they 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 do a lot of training for a civilian organization, but nothing like to the depth and the extent that we do. And, and the breadth as well. There you are. Well, Music. Chris, thank you so much for such an interesting time. And I know we're going to take it offline because we, we've got other stuff that we want to share. And I know that there's a lot of synergy that we can do to help veterans and their loved ones get even better results. So, Chris, until we speak again, thank you so much. Joe, absolute pleasure. And thanks for the opportunity. Um, and, yeah, I hope that's been useful. Uh, and I look forward to uh, to keeping up and keeping in touch with you, Joe. Cheers. Most definitely. Thank you. Cheers.